Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every week on this show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet a sustainable approach, an approach where we're not willing to sacrifice our health or our relationships to grow our company. This week, I spoke with Will Schroeder. He's the founder of Startups.com, which you may have heard of. Startups.com has acquired a number of of products that that I'm familiar with. He acquired Clarity.com from Dan Martell. He acquired Zirtual from Marin Kate, whom I spoke with, well, what, about 12, 18 months ago about the the crashing and burning and then uh, the acquisition of that. And Will and his team were the acquirers. Will's story is is incredible. He started his first company. It was an agency at age 19 while he was at Ohio State. And he went on to exit that in 2003. After that, he started an incubator. And again, this is 2003-2005 timeframe. It was called Virtucon Ventures, and he called it an idea stage incubator for web startups where he helped conceive and launch companies including Swapalease.com and Unsubscribe.com. And he thinks venture capital is a poor use of capital, and he has liked being the second buyer of a lot of companies. So fascinating story. 2012, he starts Startups.com, which he calls the world's largest startup launch platform. They're based in Columbus, Ohio. And although they are 200 people strong, fully self-funded, eight figures of revenue, Will still is involved doing UX copy work. He said he's a CFO, the CEO, and he works on the products. So fascinating story from really, I would say kind of a renaissance man who just has this massive skill set and who's been doing this for 20 something years and just has a deep well of knowledge. So before we dive into our conversation, I want to remind you again of a MicroConf Remote, which is happening September 1st. It is a virtual event. If you head to microconfremote.com, you can get a ticket and reserve your spot. And it is not going to be the typical virtual summit that you are seeing online. Producer Xander and I have put a lot of thought into making this creative and it's shaping up to be a great event. So I hope you will join us. That's microconfremote.com. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Will Schroeder. Will Schroeder, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So you you started your first company at age 19 in college. It's kind of the... uh, the story that we see in the films or we see, you know, glorified, but you built it into a massive agency, $700 million in revenue. And then you exited in 2003. I don't want to spend too much time diving into that because, you know, building an agency is not necessarily in line with what folks want to listen to here. But I'm curious, you sell your company and you obviously walk away with, I'm going to just assume at that revenue level that you walked away with life-changing money in a big way. Did you know at that point that you wanted to start the next one? Or did you take a bunch of time off, give it thought and kind of check out your options? I was already starting the next thing long before it sold. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, you got to figure I was, I was 27. You know, so my career hadn't even started yet. And from my standpoint, life changing for me was the first time I made over a $100,000. And I'm not trying to like discount, you know, making more money. It's wonderful. But you know, I grew up in a really challenged childhood. And I got to tell you, having enough money to know that I can pay my rent next month <laughs> was the most light. I mean, it blew my mind the first time I had enough money in my bank account just to be able to pay my bills. It was it was such a huge departure from what I'd been used to. Yeah, I remember that moment for myself as well. There were a few stages. It was getting to 100,000 where I was like, oh man, like, I'm pretty, we're pretty comfortable. Living in California on a hundred grand also is different than living in whatever, in the Midwest where I live now. But then there was that moment of there was a next level up. The numbers are going to vary based on your lifestyle and stuff, but it was about, you know, it was about 250 or 300 a year. And I remember that being life-changing as well. So I appreciate that 
Yeah. You know, people always think about the big cash out number, but I tend to tell people, and I really, really try to emphasize this, that if you can ever take a $250,000 check off the table, it will be maybe the most life-changing money you'll ever have because it's all the money that you need to do all the things that you haven't been able to do for a very long time. And for most people won't be able to, you know, most people live paycheck to paycheck. And so being able to have a little bit of cash that can kind of reset the the baseline is extraordinary. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. Yeah, that's the thing. It's such a trip. I hear founders use the phrase life-changing money. So life-changing money, as we're saying here, is different than what I call sunset money, or a lot of people call FU money, right? FU money is where you don't have, ever have to work again, don't ever have to have a boss again. But life-changing money can literally be 250 grand, as you're saying. Here's why. It's because $250,000, and again, let's let's calibrate to what area of the world you're at, not just even what you know, part of the US you're at. But in most places, it will get you at least close to a down payment on a home. It will allow you to pay off debts you've assuredly racked up, you know, your credit card debts, etc. It puts some just extra cash in the bank. So the first time something pops up, I don't care if it's a car repair, a doctor issue, whatever, that you can cover it. I mean, if you think about it, most people spend most of their lives just trying to get through a a handful of milestones that aren't massive cost milestones, the the purchase of a car, paying off college debt, getting married, you know, you name it. And those are often tens of thousands of dollars problems, sometimes, you know, 50 to $100,000 problems, but they're never million dollar problems. And so really most of the things that we spend the first 20 years of our career trying to overcome all fall within 250K. Yeah. Wise words, sir. So you you came off of of this exit and you started an incubator, which is different than I think. I think people use incubator and accelerator these days interchangeably. But back then, it was more of a a folks heard of Idea Lab in Pasadena was the kind of prototypical one that I remember. Bill Gross started it. And it's where someone, in this case, you, comes up with, with company ideas, with startup ideas, and then brings people in to build them and tries to launch a bunch of different ideas. Does that accurately describe what you were doing? Yeah. And so what happened was that the agency, you know, we were one of the first web development agencies and got paid lots of money, obviously, to build websites on the internet. And it was a combination of me walking into big companies like BMW and Best Buy saying, here's how to use the internet. Here's how to use technology. And after a while, I started thinking, I'm the one with the know-how to do this stuff. And I'm the one with the ideas that I'm pitching these clients. Why keep going to clients? (laughs) Why not just build the stuff for myself and get my own output and take clients out of the mix altogether? And so I started working on building web properties. And it was right at the dawn of performance marketing. This is in the early 2000s. A lot of people, they came into their careers when this was all well-established, whether it's SEO, PPC, affiliate marketing, etc., But right around the turn of the century, all of those things were just getting invented, ironically, from Bill Gross. If you recall, Bill Gross invented PPC. And what was really interesting about all of that is for the first time in history, you could build a company on tens of thousands of dollars because you could pay for your customer acquisition as you did it. Whereas before, you have to dole out tons of money and hope that somebody might show up in non-trackable media. And I saw that trend, again, I was coming from the agency world, as a different way to be able to build companies. And that's where VergeCon and the companies we built out of that were spawned. Yeah, and so many 
so many folks who are agencies or freelancers want to get into products. And it sounds like they should have that. Yep, exactly. Right. <laughs> that, I mean, that's where I came from, right? I was a software developer, became a consultant, started like a micro agency where I had a few contractors and I had a few full-time jobs in there too. But I had a similar experience as you where it's like, why am I, I don't want to build stuff for other people. I want to be creative and, and build equity, right? Because I never felt like I was building much long-term value. I didn't obviously build an agency nearly as large as yours. Well, by definition, you're not building long-term value. And you know, what's really interesting about, about all of this is if all you're doing is charging for your time, you're going to always be on a treadmill because the, the time is the treadmill. And so at some point, you got to be charging for your output, not your time. And it's such a tough transition to make. Client services, professional services is always the easiest business to get into and the hardest business to get out of. So for a lot of folks, we get into it, we get used to getting paid the good money. And then like, wow, we want to take a portion of our time and we want to go build something, you know, that'll make money while we sleep. And the, <laughs> the challenge and the delta everybody has is trying to do both, trying to get that other thing off the ground. But it's a worthy pursuit. I, whenever I talk to folks that say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to get into product, I'm like, that is always the right as evolution. Yep. And I have some notes here that you launched out of Virtucon, which was the name of the incubator. You launched swapalease.com, which I've actually checked out. I've just browsed looking at people trying to get out of their leases and been like, man, what would it be like to have a Maserati for four months? <laughs> uh, well, it, it, it was interesting. So when I was first getting started with the incubator concept, the guys at Swapalease had already started the business. So that was the first one. They had like an idea and a prototype, like, you know, in today's terms, an MVP, but they hadn't really scaled it. And so I said, look, you know, I've, I've got this model that I'm working on. Let me take that and grow it. And so that was the, kind of the first client, if you will, of our of our incubator. And we ended up scaling that pretty quickly. So it was doing almost no revenue. And then within the first year or two, we we're doing about 3 million in revenue, but on like a million five in EBITDA. And that was all through performance marketing. And remember, this is a long time ago. I, I think it's funny because I haven't been to the website in years. But I think the design that's there was the same one that we used back in 2003. It has not evolved much, but it's a great business. And I started to realize that you could build these small businesses that could start small and either succeed or fail small, which again, at the time was not the case, and then figure out which ones might have some legs. And so after that, I started five more companies. And what was interesting about it is I wasn't just starting them and kind of saying, hey, let's see how it goes and somebody else runs them like an angel investor does. I was actually running them. And I mean, really running them. I'm talking about running payroll, doing marketing, doing finance, you, you name it. And so within five years, I basically had five full-time jobs. <laughs> uh, just a uh, side note, not the healthiest way to live. <laughs> well, it's such a trip because you and I have traveled very similar paths. Although at that time, I guess you were there from about 2003 or not there. You had started it and, and worked on Virtucon and these companies from 2003 to about 2011, 2012. In the 2000 to 2005 timeframe, I was launching super small, single founder software products. And then as pay-per-click, SEO, affiliate stuff started, I, I learned those spaces. And that's how I built these little micro companies. If you like, if you remove two zeros from a lot of your numbers that, you know, I had a, I had a collection of about eight or nine web properties. Some were websites that brought in revenue and others were actual downloadable software. People paid a few hundred dollars for, and I cobbled together a full-time income and it was able, I was able to escape freelancing in essence. And so you were doing it on a much larger scale at the time. It, it sounds like Virtucon, you self-funded that correctly. You did not, there was no venture capital involved. Correct. Okay. And you mentioned to me offline that some of the companies that you spawned out of there did wind up taking venture 
Yeah, I mean, we kind of just fell into it. So we were running one company that was based in, in Los Angeles. And so I started spending more and more time in Los Angeles. And that's essentially what got me to, to move out to California for about 10 years. And while I was there, I started to meet some of the local entrepreneurs. This is probably circa 2007, give or take. And one of the entrepreneurs that I'd met, an investor, was the guy who just got there named Mark Suster. Mark blogs a lot over at Upfront Ventures. And Mark and a guy named Mike Jones, Mike runs Science, the incubator in, in Santa Monica, as well as uh, used to be the CEO for a minute of MySpace, did a bunch of other things, great guy. Both of them in the same week offered to invest their personal money in one of the projects I was working on. And I hadn't thought about taking on investors. It just never occurred to me. But then I thought about it and I said, hey, you know, for every one of these companies, as they grow, they're just going to need exponentially more money. And every dollar that I invest in growing one of them is another dollar I can invest in starting another. So sure, I took very small amounts of money, but from quite a few people. And in all those connections, I started to meet lots of investors and investors said, hey, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And so it got really interesting. And the last company we did, a company called unsubscribe.com, you know, we were able to raise money for that in about 24 hours. It's just kind of easy. Compare that to the pain and heartache that I went through of, you know, constantly topping up the bank accounts for all these different companies. It's kind of hard to turn away. Even during a tough time, 2007, 2008, financial crisis, not exactly the easiest time to be raising money. Yeah. Had you raised money before this? Never. Okay. I was in Columbus, Ohio. At the time, we didn't have any money. Yep. Right? You know, you just you did things the old-fashioned way. You just found revenue. Right. This landscape is so different today. Yeah, <laughs> so different. So different. Now there's a $500 million fund in Columbus. And, and so I wouldn't say I had necessarily had a bad experience, but I can say this. I had a lot of experience because I had three venture-funded companies at that point that I was running all of them all at the same time. And so I just had this really unusual life experience where I was running five companies at exactly the same time. And so while one company was practically going bankrupt, the next company was getting an amazing term sheet. While one company was losing its biggest customer, the next company was winning its biggest customer. Five different staffs, so <laughs> very different dynamics with each. And I just got all this incredible experience. I also nearly killed myself, but it's a separate issue. And after a while, I started to spend a lot of time with a lot of founders, coaching them through the process because people would say, hey, I, I understand you know a lot about starting companies. Can you help me understand funding or customer acquisition or you know whatever? And I realized that what I was particularly good at was teaching people how to build startups. And so I said, well, why don't I figure out how to do that for a living? And that's where startups.com came from. Right. In 2012, you founded it as startups.co since you've obviously got the, the killer domain name startups.com. That is so cool. Very expensive uh, consonant. But uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it, man. And so for folks who aren't familiar with startups.com, how, how do you explain it? Like what's the elevator pitch? Yeah. So we teach people how to get ideas out of their head and into a launch mode. And so the average person, you know, they watch Shark Tank and they say, oh, you know, I want to do something just like what that person said they want to do. And they go to start it and they realize they have no idea what they're doing. There's so many different types of advice out there. There's so many different tools out there. It's, it's fairly confusing. And some of it's good, some of it's bad. But what I wanted to do was to create a simple place where people could get the education they needed, the community of people that could actually help them. We've got over 20,000 mentors at the ready and the tools they need to get through the hard parts like raising money or finding your first customer or putting your plan together, things like that. Nice. Yeah, we have a lot of overlap actually because with, with MicroConf, we do, we do a chunk of that and then we do in-person events. There's a Venn diagram where we, <laughs> it's, you know, we have education and community and in-person events, but we don't have uh, like actual software products, you know, versus you have actually built yourself up a nice little um, cachet of businesses. You first came on my radar, I believe, when you bought Clarity.fm 
which I, I think is now clarity.com. You bought that from Dan Martell several years ago. And then folks who listen to this podcast will remember that Marin Kate was on a few months back talking about Zirtual, raising funding and growing that, and then, you know, having, unfortunately, having it implode on her. And you also acquired that from her, as well as LaunchRock, Fundable, which is a crowdfunding platform, and BizPlan. When you first came up with the idea of startups.com, or as you were building in the early days, were you just planning to do education and community? Or were you thinking from the start, no, I also want to buy other companies or build other products and, and bring them under the umbrella? I mean, that was the trick. If we want to help people through the startup process, through the launch process... Where do you start and where do you end? Uh, again, I'm sure you, you deal with this exactly in your own business. Do you just give education and then say, go figure it out from there? Do you just connect them with mentors and say, go figure it out from there? Do you just provide one dimension of the problem of software, which is you know, funding or customer acquisition and say, figure it out from there? We realized that we just couldn't find a really logical start and stop point to help people at scale. And to, to give you a sense for it, there's 1.2 million companies on the platform. And so... Not everybody's going through the whole process sequentially either, right? Not everybody wants help the moment they have an idea. Just many people come to us and they've already got the idea. They're incorporated, they've got a team together, et cetera. And they're working on first customers. They're working on funding. Where we fit best, you know, where we are kind of a sweet spot is, you know, right at the point where either you had the idea or you're just about to launch and just barely launched. You know, we do some things post-launch, but generally that's, that's where we fit best. Once you've launched, once you're in market, it kind of becomes a different path and it becomes highly segmented depending on what business you're in. But getting up to the launch point is is pretty uniform. So we, we figured we want to cover every aspect of that part of the journey. And you've, you've acquired these products and built quite a team. You're mentioning you have 200 people, you're still fully self-funded. Can you give folks an idea of the revenue you do in a year? Yeah, we don't get specific. We say it's eight figures, so you can figure it's at least that. But we're debt-free and profitable. You know, an interesting part of that, if, if you don't mind me kind of just jumping in as to why the debt-free and profitable thing is so important to us, everybody understands the value, but I just want to unpack that just a little bit more. Debt-free and profitable was our goal. A lot of people talk about growth goals. They say we want to hit 1 million or want to hit 10 million or 100 million or whatever. Our only goal was become debt-free and profitable <laughs> because all we cared about when we formed the company were two very specific things. Number one is don't have a boss, which often comes from being in debt in some way, whether you raise money or whether you take on you know, traditional debt, et cetera. And the second was be able to do this for as long as we need to to make it work, which means give yourself unlimited runway. We didn't want to be in a rush. Not that we don't like to get things done quickly, but that's not the same thing. I like to move quickly, but I'm not in a rush. In a rush means there's some artificial deadline that's being imposed upon me that I have to hit. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be able to, for things to take as long as they needed to take to get them right. And I think that goal has served us so incredibly well. And it's the first time I've been able to operate under that after doing nine companies. Yeah. And is it debt-free and profitable was a big part of that, in essence, the, the funding that you brought to it from, you know, the exits and just prior, prior companies? Not really. I mean, it, it didn't hurt, but people tend to think of it as there was just this big pot of cash that we used that we could just burn through without thinking about it. It's worth noting, I'm also our CFO. So the finances to me are incredibly important. And I said, let's make every single decision 
based on will it get us to profitability faster? And so we did a lot of things that that are non-traditional. In other words, when we were building the first parts of the business, we built a professional services business. The part that we said, let's try to get out of in the professional services business was helping people write business plans or go through capital raising processes, et cetera. And we did that because that revenue would scale faster in order to get us to profitability so we could start to build a SaaS business faster. But not because that's what we wanted to get into, per se. Like, we like providing the service, but we did that as a means to an end. But there was lots of decisions based on, will this get us to profitability faster? And, you know, you just mentioned that you are the CFO, and I'm assuming you're the CEO, and you you said you write most all of the copy, you you do UX work. I mean, that in a 200-person team, to have one person doing all those roles is highly unusual. You want to talk a little about that? Yeah, I also manage our social media. <laughs> I have a lot of jobs. How many hours do you work in a week? Not that many. So I would probably say I'm available for about 50 hours a week. And I would say my core focus hours of where I get productive things done are about three hours a day. Fascinating. Well, you know, I can go on forever about this, but to give you the TLDR version, what I learned early on is that I spent most of my career working 80 to 100 hour weeks for decades and it had huge impacts on my health. But more importantly... I worked all those hours because I could, not because I should. And once I started to become more militant about my time, because I had kids, you know, and and now it was a a one-for-one time I was at work, I wasn't with my kids, and I just wasn't really willing to make that trade-off. I realized that I just had to make the fishbowl of my time smaller. And lo and behold, I actually got more done. I'm a huge proponent of focusing more on output than hours, and I'm so thankful for it. You and I have a lot in common because the same thing happened to me. I used to, I worked a day job. Then I came home at night and I would work four, five, six, seven hours. So I was working these really, well, seven, not seven, but I would work four to six hours every night. My wife and I were married, but she knew that I was building something bigger than us. You know, we both grew up pretty working class and just didn't have, our futures were just working jobs. And I was like, no, I think I can do something bigger than that. And once we had kids, I had had enough good fortune slash hard work that, you know, I did have businesses on my own and I had already backed off to, I worked, there was a time where I was working 10, 12 hours a week for almost 10 months with a full-time income. It was just something, it was the four hour work week. I had read that in 2007 and I was like, that's my goal. And I achieved it in, it was about 2010. And I really enjoyed that time, but I got very bored and I realized that I needed to challenge myself. And I ne- I've never gone back to working long hours after that. And it's a level of efficiency, I believe, effectiveness. And I don't know, it's wisdom, it's experience. There's something that that comes with this. And I love the idea you've talked about of time boxing. My wife had our second child in 2010. That was, you know, another change. Our first child, 2006, second one, 2010. And th- that was a big shift for me mentally. And it allows me to be like you, more productive than probably I ever was in my 20s. Yeah. Again, I, I think you touched on a couple of interesting points. One is that if you have the experience, you know, you, you can work a little bit less because you know what's around the corner, whereas you didn't before. I think another aspect of it is if you have the hours available, and I don't think we realize this when we're younger, you'll just use them, right? Because they don't cost you anything. Later on in life, you know, as you, as you get older and as your priorities change, there's real cost to it. For almost 20 years, I never went home during daylight. It didn't occur to me that you were allowed to. I just assumed when you go home, it's always, you know, you're in your car, it's always nighttime. When you leave and go in the parking lot, there's never another car there. That's 20 years, a long time to, to feel that way. And now I look back thinking I was an idiot. Like I should have looked at that as a massive failure on my time management and output. But instead I looked at it as a source of pride 
because I was, quote, working hard. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. But I got to tell you, anybody that's working 80 to 100 hours and says they can't work less, I would highly challenge that. Maybe it's possible. I'm not saying that there's one size that fits every schedule. But I got to tell you, as a guy who worked awfully hard for a long time, I look back now and realize I, I could have managed my time so much differently. And as you said, it takes a toll on your health and on your body. It does. It's not It's not good. I'm curious on that note, I like to touch on with founders kind of uh, high and low. Um, oftentimes we time box it and I'll say like, you know, with because you've done so much, it, it would be hard to go through highs and lows of all of it. But I'm curious, like, what's been the hardest part of building startups.com? It was right before it started. The epilogue to me starting all those companies and doing the incubator is I mentioned that it was taking a toll on me. In 2011, right around the time, 2012 specifically, though, that we, that we'd started startups, we were getting married, my wife and I, we were having our first child, like I mean, all these things were happening, all these life events. And I was 37 years old. And I always point out the age, because I'm going to tell you, and there's somebody that's going to be listening to this, there is a freak anomaly about the age of 37. I can't tell you how many founders at the age of 37 specifically have hit this bizarre life-changing event. The life events are all different, but it's always at 37. I can't figure out why. Anyway, I'm sitting with my friends at lunch and I just said to him, I said, boy, I don't feel right. Like I, I can't quite explain what it is, but I think I'm just going to head home after, after lunch. After lunch, I get back to the office, hop in my car, driving up the highway back to my house. I was actually lived pretty close. And I get on the phone with my wife and I'm like, hey, I don't feel right. And just as I said that, my whole world goes black. Mind you, I'm in my car on the highway, right? Uh, my heart stopped just for a fraction of a second. But if your heart ever stops, <laughs> it's kind of hard not to notice. And it was the scariest moment of my life because you're dead for a fraction of a second. And I fortunately didn't go off the road or anything. It was just a very brief but terrifying moment. And I didn't know what was happening. I assumed I was having a heart attack. And so I was only a minute from my house. I ended up making it back to my house. Probably shouldn't have, but whatever. My friends come and get me, take me to the hospital. I'm in the ER. And they said, you had a massive anxiety attack. I said, I've never had anxiety in my life. <laughs> Not according to your heart. And it turned out that for 20 years, running myself nonstop, pretending like all of the things that I was doing to myself didn't exist, doctors said, look, eventually your body's going to tell you enough is enough. And that your body just shut down on you. I didn't even see it coming. Now, in retrospect, I should have, right? And, I, and all the signs were there. Like I had, I had as much stress as you could possibly have. But at that moment, that was one of those life moments where you just have to rethink everything. And at that point, I just stopped everything that I was doing. I mean, I did a hard stop. And I said, look, you know, everything I was involved with, I was just like, I, I, I can't do it, which is so out of the ordinary for me. And I spent what I thought was going to be a couple of days, wound up being a couple months, just figuring out what I was going to do next. You know, there's a long story about it that I won't get into, but that was one of the toughest parts of my life because I had no idea what to do next. I just knew that the pace I was running and the things that I were, was doing just couldn't work anymore. It's rare that you get that kind of binary stop switch, especially at a fairly young age. Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's obviously terrifying and must have been extremely, you know, stressful, but it, it sounds like almost a blessing in disguise because it seems like you reoriented your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a, a whole bunch of things, but a couple of the, the, the top ones that I think a lot of folks will appreciate. One of the things is you try to say, hey, if I'm going to focus all my time and energy on something, what's, you know, what's the biggest thing that I can do? And, and I, I found for myself that that was a bad question because it's, it's, it's too ambitious. It's, it's too hard to ever come up with that answer. So what I found was really helpful 
is I made a list of all the things that I don't ever want to do again, which wound up being the most life-changing thing that I ever did. I sat down and I said, look, I'm 37. I've been doing this for 20 years. I said, I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. I know enough to know what I don't want to do anymore. So I started to make a list. I said, here are all the things that I'm just never going to do, no matter what. Number one, I'm never going to work for somebody else in any capacity. And up until that time, I'd always been a founder. But I was like, depending on what you choose to do, you have bosses. You take on investors, you have bosses. You take on certain clients, you know, in, in professional service work, you have bosses. I was like, I, I don't, I, I don't want to ever have a boss. Another thing, I don't want to work with people I don't like in any capacity for one second, right? I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to. So no matter how good the deal is or good the opportunity is or this or that, I just don't ever want to go home, you know, with my stomach turning, having to be forced to work with somebody. So I just stopped. And all the people I just didn't want to work with for whatever reason, not that hard to get along with, by the way, I just didn't ever again. And the list goes on. I won't bore you with it. But the point is, I made a hard commitment to just avoiding the things that I never wanted to do. And lo and behold, my life became 100x better. Because it turns out doing the things you don't want to do is typically what people are trying to be successful for in the first place. It's shocking to me because I have... <laughs> I have a very similar list that I put together after I sold Drip. I've, I've just pulled it up. It includes, I literally wrote this out. I don't want to experience, I have longstanding or ongoing stress that I can't escape. I never want to negotiate a raise again. I actually did that one after I, I quit, you know, quit a job. Never want to have to commute again. Never want to ask for permission to take a day off. Never want to only take two weeks of vacation a year. Never want to work with people I dislike. So that one's, I've had a few of those and that the overlap is, yeah, it's crazy. But I think that they're also logical conclusions. You know, I think we all hit a point in our life where it's enough is enough. And what I tell founders, particularly young founders, and it's not specific to them, but the earlier you can get started on this list, the better, is make that list first. And, and over time, you'll add to that list because some of the stuff that's on your list or my list is there because we've been around long enough to know why that one is so important. For example, when I was younger and somebody said, I don't want to work with people I don't like, I'm like, oh, I don't really have a choice. You know, there's this client's going to pay our bills and yeah, they're a jerk, but you know, I need it. I need the money or Hey, yeah, this investor is a blowhard, but you know, I need his money. And so I'd be willing to, to compromise those. And, and maybe there's sometimes you just have to take it on the chin. But I think after a while, as you get further in your career, you start to understand the cost of those compromises. And by way of that, you start to truly understand the benefit of not compromising. So while I think for younger founders, maybe you don't, you don't quite see it yet. But I think if you put that idea in folks' head, they'll start to develop that over time and start to say, ah, okay, I get it now. People are jerks and I don't want to work with them. Check. So I want to switch it up a little bit because I have this topic. You mentioned it offline and it resonated with something that I have written about and, and talked about before. And it's as I was coming up 2005 to 2010, say, I had previously, since I was a software developer, I built a lot of products and I would start them and I would, it would take me months of nights and weekends because I was working a full-time job. And at a certain point, I realized that I could acquire products for not that much money that I could, all I needed to do was add a feature to and market them. And, and it was a huge shortcut for me, right? Instead of spending the six months of nights and weekends development time, I could spend $5,000 or $10,000, which is, is not nothing, but I was, was making that as a consultant. You know, I had stuff on the side going. And I talked about how being the second buyer of something was super advantageous because 
oftentimes someone would either spend, they'd spend their 500 hours building it. And I then became, I guess in that case, I was the first buyer. But in, in other instances, someone would acquire it, couldn't grow it, and then I'd be the second buyer. And I would tend to, I just wasn't paying that much money for these things that I had previously thought were really valuable. I was billing 150 an hour. So if I spent 400 hours, which is not an outrageous amount of time to build a full software product, right? Well, that, that's like 60 grand of my time that I could have literally been been billing. So to me, that 400 hour product was worth in my head, $60,000. Turns out I bought a product that took about 400 hours to build for less than $10,000. So to me, that was a that was a deal, right? You mentioned that you have been the kind of the second funder or second buyer of some of these, of these tools that were funded by venture capital. You want to talk through that, you know, that thought process and how it's played out? Yeah, look, my thought process started when I was well, I was the company being funded by venture capital. And I thought to myself, the first year to two years of spend with a VC money is so wildly inefficient by definition, because you're experimenting like crazy, right? So you have this massive amount of inefficiency between validating the idea, getting the right team, trying all these different marketing channels, figuring out what works, et cetera. So most of that gets gets pissed away, whether, you know, no matter how good you are. You know, I've been in this a long time and, and I can't do it any more efficiently than you can. That said, I started to think about it as well. It's like, you know, boy, whoever gets to show up second on this idea, just like you did, just like I did, doesn't have any of that cost. All of those things have been figured out. And remember, it's not just dollars, it's also time. So when we bought a, a product called Clarity.fm, which you know Dan, you mentioned Dan Martell had built, Dan raised millions of dollars from great investors. But more importantly, Dan, who's super smart, spent years and years and years trying every combination to see what worked and figured it out. You know, he did all the customer acquisition, he did all the scaling, he tried all the pricing models, et cetera. And we were fortunate when we did the acquisition, Dan called us and asked if, you know, if we were interested in it to be able to say, cool, Dan's got it all figured out. We get to pick it up with all that stuff already done. And yeah, maybe we need to make some changes or additions or maybe we don't. But the point is it's all already been figured out. We don't have to spend all that time to do it again. So if I could spend $250,000 to build my own product or $250,000 to acquire somebody else's product that probably spent even more trying to get into it, in most cases, I'd take the latter every single time because the one thing that that money doesn't account for is all the time and effort it took to get to that point of the product. Awesome, Will. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. I feel like it's been a really uh, insightful conversation. You obviously have tons of knowledge. I know we could talk for hours. If folks do want to hear you think through this kind of stuff on a, a weekly basis, they can head to this. It's the Startup Therapy Podcast where you and someone you work with at startups.com, you guys chat through this kind of stuff. You, how long ago did you, you say you started? About a year? About a year ago. We just recorded episode 60. So we just sit and talk about stuff that we know is keeping founders up at night and we walk through the issues detail by detail and show them how we get through. Awesome. And obviously, if folks want to see what you're, what you're up to on a day-to-day -day basis, startups.com, pretty easy to remember. Yeah. Thanks again, Will. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Will for coming on the show today. If you haven't left a review for Startups for the Rest of Us, even if it's just a five-star, click the five stars without having to type anything in. I'd really appreciate that in whatever podcatcher you use. And if you're not on our email list, you're missing out on two exclusive episodes that have never appeared in this podcast feed. The first one is about things you should know when you launch a SaaS app. And the second one is things you should know as you scale your SaaS app. And I recorded those solo. And again, you know, they've never been released. And you get in your email, you get those episodes as well as the PDF guides that summarize them.
Thanks for joining me this week. I'll be back in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.